It's Wednesday, January 22nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio and Motley Fool Special Ops, Mike Olson, and from Fool.com, and the hit show Where the Money Is, Matt Copenheffer. Hola, Chris. Wow, what a celebrity presence. Wow. It, it is a celebrity presence. And, and when you see that sweater, that when yeah. you see that sweater, which no one listening can actually see, no. but it is but you so, can't miss it. But it's so bright, maybe <laughs> maybe people listening actually no, can see but, it. But uh, there's also, would we call that a fuchsia bow tie? I think I'm colorblind, so I actually don't know. Pe- oh, well, you matched it to your plaid shirt in a spectacular way for your colorblindness. I, I, I had some help from my wife this morning. We also had an agreement that this would be the last time I wear this sweater. So, <laughs> <laughs> so your your eyes can rejoice. You don't you don't have to deal with this one again. I have That's noticed sad. comments on iTunes and on YouTube. Uh, people. Uh, People watching the video of where the money is really starting to identify you with the bow ties. Distinctive. Distinctive. Yes. Um, Highly refined. (laughs) uh, Earnings Palooza rolls on. So we will talk IBM. We will talk Coach. We will talk uh, railroads as well. Got to say, though, um, I was feeling a little bad about the weather just as I was walking to work this morning. It's, it's, It's very chilly here as it is in much of the northeast part of the United States. But then I realized that uh, we have some colleagues here from Australia. I don't know if you had the chance to meet Lynette Jackson and Aaron Bowmeister, who are who, who work at Motley Fool Australia. I will, I will be having drinks with them tonight. I canceled uh, dinner last night because I couldn't go and meet them for dinner. Because of the snow, yeah. Right. Um, and, and I thought, well, as cold as I feel, here are two people who are coming from Sydney, Australia, where the difference in Fahrenheit in temperature is about 60 to 70 degrees. Uh, and in terms of Celsius, uh, it's another. It, it's about thirty degrees. But, but you know, is it? Is it's it kind so of a, much warmer it, there, and for them, it's going to be horrible to be. It might here be right kind now. of exciting though, for the very simple fact that you just don't see this every. You know, you don't see this that often. It's Certainly Sydney. not in the summer in Sydney, no. Australia. Uh, let's start with Big Blue uh, shares of IBM down around four percent this morning. Matt, uh, fourth quarter revenue was lower than expected. They also their guidance for the first quarter was not really what people were looking for. How bad was this? This is a company that's been such a superb operator for so long. Is this yet another example of what we've seen over the last few months of well, it was good but not great? Uh, I don't. Think or was it, this yeah, in fact not that great? I don't think it was. I don't think it was all that great, but. Um I don't think it was an example of good but not good enough. Okay. Uh, and, and a big part of the problem was still in over in IBM's hardware division. And so uh, when you look at the <clears throat> the hardware group in particular, that was the biggest drag on the results. And actually, IBM has been in talks, uh, the Wall Street Journal was reporting this, has been in talks to sell part of its server division, part of the low-end server division, onto Lenovo. And so in that, you see sort of this continued transition of IBM, who is known as a, a mainframe computer company, away from things, like things that you buy, and and, uh, more into services and into software. The software division did uh, much better, and the the services division, while not great, uh, looked a lot better than than the hardware. So it's this continued transition for IBM. Uh, I wouldn't bet against them long term, uh, but this this was not a pretty quarter. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, so I think that there are a few things to know. The first is that you know, the businesses which are really the sticky revenues, the software, the services, this is where, you know, IBM IBM basically hooks up to a company's circulatory system and they provide a reading on it. And these are very hard things to switch out. They're data intensive and the implementations are really, really challenging. And the results there were, again, not great 
but they weren't horrible. Um, and a lot of the declines were in the more commodified end of the spectrum. And I think that, you know, you're going to continue to see that, particularly in servers. That's just not an area where you want to compete. And that's fine. You know, the mainframe business is okay. That's going to continue to be a cash cow for them, in my opinion. Um, you know, it's hard to really get excited about this, but I think that if you're to take a much longer view, those sticky sources of revenue are going to remain. There are real challenges here from competition. The China numbers really not exciting, but when you have a company that produces this much cash and has the sort of recurring cash flow that they have, even if there is a change in industry landscape, I would expect that they're going to be able to acquire into it and keep that core customer. So, in terms of the stock, this is a stock that has performed. It's been a market beater for the last 18 years or so. It has been just a, a really powerful performing stock. But when I hear what both you guys say, I start to think of Microsoft circa 2000. And the point was made recently that, hey, if you look at Microsoft over the last decade or so, they've substantially increased their profits. But it hasn't shown up in the stock performance. So, like you, Matt, I'm not betting. I don't own shares of IBM, and I'm not betting against them. But I also start to wonder if, after this tremendous 18, 19 year run the stock has had, is IBM moving into? Is IBM the stock moving into a position not unlike Microsoft did 13, 14 years ago? I don't think that's the case. Um, I would, in this market, I would rather own IBM than than a lot of other stocks. It's it's not exceptionally cheap, but I'd rather own it th- than a lot of other stocks. And what you over the past decade or so, um, you've seen a lot of the the fruit of IBM's transition again away from the the commodity type of uh, computers and stuff like that to this more services and software heavy business. And to the extent that that continues to become a bigger part of its business, I think that makes for a much more attractive company uh, going forward. Not to mention that that I think IBM has had increasingly savvy management. And here's, this is actually a quote I pulled out from a, from a Wall Street Journal article today. Uh, it, was, it was saying, Wall Street analysts have criticized IBM for too aggressively managing earnings through stock buybacks, lower tax rates, and cost cuts. Granted, you can use those things to manage earnings, and to the extent that IBM is doing that, that's no good. But stock buybacks are also another word for savvy capital allocation. Lower tax well, rates I, are... I was going to say, lower tax rates? They're getting dinged for going after lower tax rates? And, and co- cost cuts? I, I mean, that can be good management. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess more... context is in order here, though. And it's just like, you can continue to do that all day. And if your revenue is not growing, that's a sinking ship. Sure, uh, true. I mean, at 13 times earnings, it's earnings. It's it starts to look interesting um, because they're going to pass cost increases on these core software businesses and everything else, and you pull a 90 percent profit margin on it. I mean, it's it's just a beautiful thing. But like Matt says, I mean, I kind I kind of want this to be like a 10 times earnings stock before I I really get interested. Let's move on to Coach. Shares down more than six percent this morning. Second quarter profits. Came in lower than people were looking for, and the uh, the phrase that pays Mike is, uh, and this is directly from Coach Coach uh, uh, quote substantially lower foot traffic at North American stores. How bad is this? Uh, you know, I, I was talking with um, with an analyst who will remain unnamed before we went into this, and the very interesting thing about the Coach story is maybe a year not so long ago when Lou Frankfurt was in there. 
it was the you know coaches undergoing this transition into uh, a lifestyle brand and now it is that they're rebuilding brand equity or something like that and you know a 13% decline in your cash cow business uh, north america is pretty bad news. They are really kind of in, in this position where they're remaking themselves. They're rolling out new lines. They've had transition in the top executive ranks. The CEO is leaving, longtime CEO, and their top designer. And so then you have to go ahead and ask yourself, in a cutthroat, very competitive sphere, if you're losing your customers, even if these new designs resonate, is it going to be something where they can reclaim what they've lost? If they had access to a time machine and could go back a few years when the decision was made, hey, look, at we're a luxury brand now, but look at the lower end of the market. We can go more mainstream. We're leaving money on the table. That's ours for the taking. I know they can't go back now, but was it a mistake for Coach in the first place to give up their position as a luxury brand? I think it's a horrible, horrible error. And, you know, it's one of these things where there's a slippery slope here. You can go ahead and you can expand into related product lines. You can move a little bit down market and maintain that cachet. But in the long run, if you want to retain that premium position, you can't go ahead and commodify yourself because then you find yourself in this sort of Bermuda Triangle, which is just a horrible, horrible place to be. Do you think when it comes, we talk about value opportunities in investing, whether it's the banking industry, the technology industry, and the point has been made by others that the technology space is not really the space you want to look for, quote, a value stock. You can look for it in financials. You can look for it in others. When it comes to consumer brands like this is this stepping back from coach but just widening the lens is this a necessarily good or bad place to look for value opportunities if you're an investor or is this is this somewhere in between good or bad I think there's a lot of opportunity to get hit with value traps in this in this space because a, a lot of times what you have is you have this this uh, wave that these companies ride on uh, building out a luxury brand or, or building out a, a sort of a de novo brand out of out of nowhere, but when that starts to falter. Uh, it's often a lot more difficult to bring consumers back to a brand that has lost its luster than it is to get them on board with a with a brand on the rise. Right. Um, I, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so, so as soon as you see those low multiples uh, associated with one of these stocks, it can be a signal, oh, well, l- let, me get, let me get on this. But really, it's, it's going to be tough for that company to turn it back around. Right. I, I think, I think a context is in order here in the sort of an observation of history, which is to say that I might actually prefer the value that is a Microsoft where there are very sticky revenues or an Oracle or an IBM. And those are the exceptions among the, in the tech sphere. But they have nice recurring revenues and organizations, they build IT infrastructure around this. A brand like Coach, there's no recurrence of revenue. There's no reason your customer needs to come back. It's not like switching your handbag out is going to cause you like <laughs> extraordinary right. stress. Right. Um, there's, there's not necessarily the ecos- well. Is that- <laughs> <laughs> this is this is three guys sitting around a table here. Right. So. I mean, well, maybe right. it'll cause you stress. None, but, of us, <laughs> none of us are experts when it comes to handbags, but I I think the the point Mike was making was when we talk about 
the cost of switching ecosystems, exactly. whether it's yeah. iTunes or your company's sure. uh, server system, uh, there's an opportunity cost there that just isn't the same there's, as there's a Louis, There's a Louis Vuitton bag that's just waiting to enter your collection. Right. I mean, it depends on how large, like, what, how much makeup you carry, I guess, or something like that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to stop. Cut back to Matt's comments. All right, Norfolk, Quick, Norfolk quickly Southern. going off the rails, which leads us to... Which leads us to... Uh, <laughs> oh, it's it's not all shot. bad news in the market today. Uh, Norfolk Southern Corp, <laughs> up around 6% this morning. Um, the railroad reporting uh, fourth quarter much results were much better than expected. And Matt, I was looking through the numbers a little bit. As we talked about last week, uh, Tim Hansen made the point about CSX. The decline in coal traffic and Norfolk Southern saw that as well, but pretty much every other category they are transporting was up, and in some cases up double-digit percentage points. So, I mean, the stock stocks hitting an all-time high today. What's cool for average investors looking at the the rail stocks is I think that they can be a a signal of the broader economy as much as a signal to their businesses and that industry in particular. So you, you kind of back out that drag that we've had from the coal. So you've you've seen a lot of uh, utilities switching from coal to natural gas because natural gas is just so darn cheap right now and cleaner and, and all that kind of thing. Um, but you you back out that drag from coal, and you're seeing a lot of good results from these from these rails in terms of how much they're carrying, and I think that's a positive signal for the economy as a whole. Do you like railroad stocks? I love railroads. I mean, I think that you know these are de facto monopolies, and of the fact that a there's a legislative monopoly where it's just you can't build new railroads. And B, the cost of replicating a track network, particularly in the class one sphere, is so enormous that no one can get in. What is the class one sphere? The class ones are basically the ones that operate on like a regional basis. So you have your CSX, your Norfolk Southern, okay. um, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, now a Berkshire company. Um, and, and I think what you see here, because it's much cheaper to move a given good via rail than trucks. They just have a license to go ahead and increase prices. Um, they are regulated, but even then, these companies are earning just a slim margin above their cost of capital, and you're going to continue to see that at work. Norfolk Southern has been particularly impressive in that they, as they've grown volume and they've increased prices, just a small margin, they've continued to reduce their headcount per you know, dollar of freight moved. And there's an inherent sort of operating leverage in this business. You think about it, I move another car load, I don't need to add that many more people. My costs, they just don't increase that much. And that's why you've seen this really impressive operating leverage. This is a great story here from an execution standpoint. And it also is, you know, another part, those great industry dynamics. One of the one of the neat things too about the the rail industry right now is you think, well, where does the rail industry see competition? Obviously, from one rail to the next, but they're often operating on regional bases. Uh, but trucks, so trucks can carry goods just as much. So, so what do you do if trucks are going to threaten your business? Well, you loop them into it. So they're they're vastly increasing the intermodal traffic, which basically means the extent to which you're taking a crate, you're taking it from a boat onto a onto a rail. You take the rail uh, on the long haul, and then you move that crate from the rail right onto the truck. They're building these really impressive uh, stations for quickly uh, switching off these these crates that that can come from basically anywhere, go on the uh, on the train, 
onto the truck, back onto another train if need be. Um, and, and I think that's going to be a, a pretty neat story uh, looking ahead the next five, ten years. You know, one other thing here. So a big knock on CSX and Norfolk Southern has been the coal element. And, you know, they are exposed to Appalachian coal, which is the dirtiest and the most expensive to move. You're going to continue to see declines there, I think, particularly in the States. That might be offset a little bit by export volumes, but I think that's going to be a declining story. The one thing that's interesting, though, is you've seen several years of double-digit volume declines. I think they're off something like 25% from 2011. And as you start to lap those volume declines, the pricing gains, because they've had to give on price, are going to look that much more impressive. I think that's something that a lot of investors may be missing. The other thing is these companies, they continue to invest in their infrastructure, and there's some tidy little tax benefits associated with that. Many of these companies, because they're spending a lot on CapEx right now, they're not going to pay a lot in cash taxes for the next several years. That's something that if you take a longer view, that can be sustained for some period of time. So Norfolk Southern hitting an all-time high today, that doesn't scare you off this stock? I mean, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's blindingly cheap. I haven't spent a lot of time on the name, but a fifteen times earnings, it's hardly expensive because I think a lot of these gains are sustainable. You agree? Yes. Just to wrap up, since we're talking Norfolk Southern, I was thinking about train songs, and you think about it, there are some great train songs: mm. Peace Train, Love Train, I've Midnight got, Train to Georgia. I've got my. You know, the Gambler starts on a train. Yeah, uh, I'm not calling that a. That, that's not a train. I get it. It's on a train. In the same way, some would argue. I would argue that Folsom Prison Blues is about a train. Okay. The classic Johnny Cash tune. Mm-hmm. But but I would, I would respect an argument that it is in fact not. Um, a train song. It, it, yeah, because it's, well, I mean, the name of the title, Folsom Prison Blues. <laughs> uh, City of New Orleans, Arlo Guthrie. I know where you're going. I can just yeah. tell from the look on your face. You're going crazy train. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm going... I'm going Train Kept a Rollin', but the Led Zeppelin version. You know, the first song they recorded as a band was Train Kept a Rollin'. I think it was 1966 or Ooh. 7. Live cover of that, if you can find it, or the live recording of it. Filed under Music Arcana. Exactly. What do you got, Matt, if you're going Best Train Song? Well, you just you just stole it from me. It's Ozzy Osbourne, Crazy Train. Crazy. Yeah, Randy Rhodes. I mean, come on. The laugh at the beginning is just terrifying when he does the <laughs> laugh. I mean... <laughs> Radio at Fool.com. Email us your nomination for Best Train Song. Matt Copenheffer, Mike Olson. Gus, thanks for being here. Thanks, Thank Chris. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.